This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Chapter 5, verse number 12, wherefore as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgressions, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace by which one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. Now, it's pretty wordy, pretty heavy through here. We're not going to focus a lot of that on that tonight. We're going to take kind of the high-level overview. We're going to dig into the nuts and bolts of this on Sunday mornings uh, as we parse through uh, Romans chapter 5, which is where we're at right now on Sunday mornings as well. And so uh, I'm going to kind of cruise through this so we can get the big picture overview here, if you will. Uh, verse 16, not as it, uh, as it was by one that had sinned, so is the gift, for the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by righteousness of one, the free gift came unto all men of justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So here we see in this passage kind of a, a contrast between Adam uh, and the person of Jesus Christ. Many times in typology, we'll see things that are the same that are a picture. Uh, for example, the ark is a type of Jesus Christ. God's destruction is coming. He's going to wipe out all of mankind. But those who by faith come into the ark are safe. They're saved from the condemnation, the judgment, the punishment that comes. And when the storm has passed and the, the those who were found in the ark will walk out into a free new life. The ark is a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. So many times we'll see exactly who Jesus is in a, in a type in the Old Testament. Adam is a little bit different in the fact that there are some similarities, but the majority of things that we see between Adam and Jesus Christ are actually opposites. And so we will contrast uh, what Adam did with what Jesus Christ did to show us uh, the more uh, beautiful picture of who Jesus Christ is. As we take a look at Adam and Eve's situation in the Garden of Eden, we talked about uh, two weeks ago when we took a look at the Garden of Eden, how God actually uh, killed animals and skinned their, their hides to be able to cover Adam and Eve's sin. And so uh, God clothed Adam and Eve with, with coats of skin, uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse number 21. And so Adam's shame required the death of an animal to cover it, but Jesus was shamed, stripped, and put to death 
to cover our shame. And so here we see a contrast of what took place with Adam and what took place with Jesus Christ. Again, as we talked about when we took a look at the Garden of Eden, how those coats of skin that an animal's blood was shed to cover Adam and Eve's sin is a picture of how the blood of Jesus had to be shed to cover our sin as well. But you can take it one step further. While Adam and Eve were naked and ashamed in their sin, and they had to be clothed, Jesus Christ was already clothed, but he was actually stripped of his clothing, crucified naked, and put to death because of our sin. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 27, verse number 28, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him. They took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that, they had mocked him. They took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man, Simon of Cyrene, and they compelled him to bear his cross. And when they were coming to the place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar mingled with gall. And when they had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him. They parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots." Oftentimes, to be decent in, in the uh, portrayal of Christ's crucifixion, typically uh, Sunday school depictions or maybe even artistic depictions of Christ being crucified. He'll be crucified there sometimes with a, maybe a sash or oftentimes with a loincloth tied around him. The Romans would never have been so kind in a crucifixion. The whole purpose of a crucifixion was humiliation, public humiliation, public execution. And so Christ would have been crucified completely and totally naked in this case. We see even the clothing that was put upon him as he carried his cross up was actually stripped from him while he was crucified. This was the worst that one could imagine. And so again, we see such a stark contrast. Adam and Eve are, are embarrassed and ashamed because uh, they're naked. And God kills an animal to cover their nakedness, to cover their shame. But Jesus Christ was put to complete shame. He, he was spared no embarrassment. As you can imagine, not only being crucified, but being crucified naked and crucified naked in front of people that you know. To, to have Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, there at the crucifixion, seeing her own son being crucified naked, I can only imagine would have been one of the most humiliating things one would ever have to endure. But Jesus was willing to do that because he took upon himself our shame. As we see about Adam this morning, again, we talked about Adam's job was to rule the earth. Uh, God gave him the dominion over the, everything uh, that was on the earth. And while Adam was called to be God's image bearer and exercise dominion over creation. He failed. Jesus was an image of the invisible God and created creation, exercised dominion over creation, over sin and death, and Jesus succeeded and is reigning at the right hand of the Father. Adam was supposed to rule creation and he failed. Jesus Christ created creation. He exercised dominion uh, over creation, even as the God-man, Christ Jesus, the wind and waves obeyed him. He controlled nature. He even had power over the entire creation, even as the God-man, Jesus Christ, incarnate. We see Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Uh, pause for just a second. Genesis 1, 26 is also another verse that speaks of the Trinity. 
Uh, there are people who would deny the Trinity, saying that there's God the Father, and then the Holy Spirit and Jesus aren't really God. Well, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, verse number 26, God said, let us make man in our image. And so again, some people say, well, he's talking about the angels. You and I are not created in the image of angels. We're created in the image of God. And so when God said, let us make man in our image, he was speaking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And so here we see uh, the Godhead, the Trinity uh, present even at uh, creation. And they said, hey, let us give him dominion over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, the cattle, over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 14 speaks of Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. And so you and I were created in the image of God, but Jesus Christ was literally God. Jesus was a representative of the Godhead to mankind. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 6 tells us, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of men. And so again, it's important for you and I to note, uh, just as Christ is God, was God, and will always be God. There was never a point where Jesus Christ stopped being God. Uh, some people will say, well, he lay, laid aside his Godhead to become a man. He never once relinquished the Godhead because we needed God to die for our sins. A regular man could not accomplish the task that was necessary. We needed God to become man to die for the sins of mankind. And so Jesus Christ, when he says, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, means he didn't think it was a big deal to be on the same level of, as God because God the Father recognized him as God. And so Jesus didn't think it a, a, a strange thing, didn't think it a big deal, thought it not robbery. He wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him to be equal with God, but he took upon himself the form of a servant. That word servant means a bond slave. And so Jesus became Father. And again, people might say, well, that, that's kind of strange that I can do only the things that are the will of my Father. That's it. Because Jesus Christ was one with God the Father. And so, again, super important that we see that. But we see a, a distinction between Adam. Adam was supposed to rule the earth and he failed. Jesus Christ created the earth, ruled the earth, and succeeded where Adam had failed. Next, we see that Adam and Eve were the very first union, the first two people uh, that were brought together. And Jesus and his church will be the last union. So again, we see in uh, the book of Genesis, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, Genesis chapter 2, verse number 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Very first union ever. So uh, again, we as Bible-believing Christians get a lot of uh, what, how we live our life, actually everything that we live our life, by what the Bible says. Marriage, very first marriage, man, woman, Adam and Eve brought together, first union. Uh, Jesus repeats for us uh, in the Gospels. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and he and his wife shall cleave together and become one flesh. And so, again, when people say, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality, Jesus said that marriage is between a man and a woman. You can't get around that. You just can't. 
And again, there were some things that Jesus said, uh, and, and whether or not Jesus says them in red or Jesus says them in black throughout the rest of Scripture, all Scripture carries the same way. And so, uh, again, we need to understand we believe not in traditional marriage, man and a woman. We believe in biblical marriage that takes place between a man and a woman because that's what Scripture tells us. And so the first union took place between Adam and Eve. The uh, second union that we see will take place between Jesus and his church, or the last union, rather, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 2. For I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear lest by any means that the serpent that beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Here's what Paul says. Church, I want you to to present you to Jesus Christ as his bride, but not a bride that's been with every guy in town. I want to present you to Christ as a chaste virgin. I want you to be special. I want you to be unique. I want you to be set apart. I want you to be preserved, he says. But I fear that I can't do that. And here's why I can't do that, because the same serpent that led Eve astray and ruined the first union, I'm afraid he's going to ruin your union that you have with Christ. And so he, he speaks of the church being the bride of Christ and that he wants to present us to Christ as a chaste virgin. We see this uh, concept again in Revelation chapter 19, verse number 7. At the end of time, before the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 19, verse number 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor unto him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. Who's the Lamb? The Lamb is Jesus Christ. And his wife hath made herself ready. Who's the bride of Christ? Somebody help me. The church. So, again, help us define terms and diagnose what we're talking about here. Is Hui Kala Baptist Church the only bride of Christ? No. We're speaking in terms of the church at large is the bride of Christ. What does that mean? All Christians who have been born again throughout all of world history make up the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, is who we call a Baptist church part of that church? Absolutely, 100%. But we are not the only bride of Christ. There are churches, believe it or not, that believe that they alone are the bride of Christ. Nobody else gets included. Uh, that's not what the Bible's speaking of is. So again, it's important that when we talk about the church being the bride of Christ, we're talking about all believers throughout all of world history are part of the bride of Christ. So, the, the groom is coming, Jesus Christ, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is of the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. So again, as John is in heaven writing the book of Revelation, John is seeing things that take place at the end of time, and at the end of time he sees the marriage supper of the Lamb, which many theologians think, and I would agree, that takes place during the seven-year tribulation period uh, before the return of Christ uh, to, to earth. And so we, we see the marriage supper of the Lamb taking place. We, the church, are the bride. Jesus Christ is the groom, and we are arrayed, we are clothed in fine white linen, which again, take a look at the text here, is the righteousness of saints. And so you and I are clothed in our obedience and righteousness to the Word of God, to Christ. Hey, here's the picture. 
You and I belong to Jesus the day that we got saved to him. He wants us to present ourselves to him arrayed in white fine linen as a chaste virgin would present herself to her husband on her wedding night. That is the idea behind this. So the idea that you and I get to live willy-nilly ever how we want to now that we're saved, we can just continue to sin and we get to go to heaven anyways, it doesn't really mean that, that big of a deal, goes strictly against who we are in Jesus Christ. The idea that the church can be a loosey-goosey connection to people who kind of sort of feel uh, strong emotions about God or the things of God, or maybe we just get together and sing songs and kind of go out to our community to love on other people, that's not the picture of what the bride of Christ is supposed to be. We're supposed to live in obedience to every single word of the word of God, and the day that we get to heaven, we are to present ourselves to our groom, which is Jesus Christ. That's why marriage is such an important when it comes to the idea of marriage either. Because marriage is a picture of how Jesus loves his church. Jesus gave himself for his church. That's why Paul commands husbands, love your wives, the way that Christ loved his church and gave himself for it. That's why wives are to be into subjection under their husbands because the church is in subjection to Jesus Christ. That's why we don't believe that you can just get married for a couple years and see how it works out. If it doesn't work out, you can get divorced and go marry someone else because that's not how marriage in the book works. That's not how brides present themselves to their husbands. And so again, we see a picture here of Adam and Eve, the very first union, and the last union that will ever take place is the union of Jesus Christ and his church. We see also similarities in the fact that Adam and Jesus were both tempted by Satan. <laughs> we see two different accounts of, of Jesus after he's been baptized. He goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, the devil comes to him and tempts him. We see Adam. How long was Adam in the garden before Eve was tempted? Not really sure, but uh, Adam was also tempted directly of Satan as well. We see that Adam was in the lush Garden of Eden where Jesus Christ was in the wilderness. Adam was in a place where he needed nothing. Jesus was in a place where he had nothing. Adam was in a place where he could stop at, at any tree that he wanted to and grab something to eat and enjoy it. Uh, he could enjoy God's fellowship. Jesus was in a place where he was cut off from all fellowship except for the Father. He was in a place where food might have probably been scarce to come by because he was in a desert place, the Bible tells us. And so we see Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse number 1, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And so we see that Adam, when he was tempted, was not alone, but was with his suitable help meet, whereas Jesus Christ was completely alone. So again, a contrast here, Adam was in a lush place, Jesus was in a barren place. Adam was with the one that God had given him specifically to, to be his person, to be his help, uh, to be someone who's fitted for him. Uh, that's who Adam was with, whereas Christ uh, was tempted completely alone. We see uh, Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse number 1, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. In those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And so here we see a, a contrast between the temptation that Jesus faced and the temptation of Adam. 
In the garden, Adam had been granted the right to eat freely from all trees, save one. Jesus himself had nothing to eat at all for 40 days. So again, when we look in the Bible and we see supernatural fasts, for example, Jesus ate nothing for 40 days. Moses, uh, on Mount Sinai, when he received uh, the Ten Commandments, ate nothing, drank nothing for 40 days. We see this is a supernatural fast. If you try to not eat or drink anything for 40 days, you will die. Because you are not Jesus, you are not Moses. Okay, And so these are supernatural events that God sustains someone for a period of time. This is the case with Jesus here. Whereas Adam had the right at any point while he's talking with Satan. And Satan says, hey, why don't you want to eat this fruit? Adam could say, I don't need that fruit because I've got 2,000 other fruit trees to choose from. Hey, Adam, why don't you come over here and uh, take a look at this over here? I don't need to look at that over there. I have all these other things that I could look at. Jesus, in this case here, was in the wilderness and had nothing to eat. Satan tempted him to turn a rock into bread because of the scarcity of food in a case like that. And so we see, uh, again, a contrast between these two temptations. Genesis chapter 2, 16. The Lord commanded them, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat. From the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Luke chapter 4, verse number 2, being 40 days tempted of the devil, in those days he did eat nothing. When they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And so, uh, again, we see a contrast in those. In both temptations, get this, Satan misused and cast doubt on the word of God. Number one trick in the playbook of the devil is to misuse scripture. If the devil showed up at your front door with a pitchfork, and a red tail and a red suit and says, ha ha, you sleeping in on church this morning? He'd be like, absolutely not. I'm going to get to the house of God and worship God today. He'd run right past him. But when you're sitting at home and you're tired, you're like, Bible doesn't say I have to go to church to be a Christian, right? Right? Yeah, that, hey, understand. Anytime you cast doubt on the word of God, you're doing the devil's work for him. And so again, we need to recognize the tools and the traps of Satan that we need to be very well. We need to know the word of God because know this, Satan knows the word of God too. Word in both cases, Satan, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, yea, hath God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Hey, did God really say that? Interesting thing that we took a look at this morning Eve had not have even been created when God had given the prohibition not to touch that tree. So maybe she didn't know if God had really said it. Well, I, Adam told me that God said it. I never actually heard it with my own ears. Well, maybe God didn't really say that. And then he goes on to say, well, God knows that the day that you eat of that fruit that you're going to be like him. God knows that you can't, you're going to be like him. And so he doesn't want that. And so Satan began to immediately cast doubt on the word of God. This is no different than something that took place in the uh, 1800s when people began to say, hey, I think the Bible's been corrupted over these years. We need to go to find what's missing in the Bible. Uh, we need to go and prove how the Bible isn't as reliable as people say that it is. And there entered a period in the, the 1800s and into the early 1900s called textual criticism. You want to go down the rabbit hole, you can do that. Where they began to say like, hey, all these copies that we have of the Bible, maybe they're not as trustworthy as you thought they were. Maybe it's not as um, cut and dried as people have said it was in the past. Then you get into uh, probably the uh, mid-1900s. Uh, this is at the time. God, Lee and Applied. We're kind of getting the overarching ideas 
And again, something I even heard when I was a kid in the 80s was the idea that this isn't the Word of God, it's the thoughts of God, but when the thoughts of God enter your heart, then they become the Word of God. It's just like, that's a bunch of nonsense. The Bible is the Word of God regardless of what I do with it. I can reject it outright. It doesn't change the fact that it is the Word of God. And so, uh, again, but then we ask the question, who would want to cast doubt on the Bible as being authentic, trustworthy, accurate, uncorrupt? Who would want to do that? Satan has wanted to do that from the very, very beginning. And so that's why you and I can have faith that we have a trustworthy, accurate representation of the Word of God at our disposal that we can run to any time that we want to. And so the Satan, hey, did God really say that? And again, this happens so often amongst Christians who want to find their own way. Did God really say that? I mean, come on, you know. Okay, be not drunk with wine, where is excess? I don't get drunk, but I just drink to have a good time. I mean, the Bible doesn't say that you can't drink to have a good time, does it? I mean, people in the Bible drank to have a good time. I mean, Jesus turned water into wine at a, at a wedding because people wanted to have a good time, right? Is that really what that means? I don't know, maybe we should dig a little bit deeper. Well, you know, if you can't trust that, what can you trust out of the Bible? Then we begin to doubt the Bible. Who would cause us to doubt the Bible? The devil would, guaranteed. And so again, you want to have the alcohol talk, we can have that another time. That wasn't the point, it was the illustration. How we can sometimes find the parts of the Bible that we like to apply to what we want to, to find an excuse to do what we want to do. That's a, that's a trick of the devil, just know that. So we see Jesus, whenever he was tempted of the devil, being 40 days tempted of the devil, Luke 42, those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, afterward he hungered. And so then he says, hey, there, there's this uh, stone here. Do you want to turn that into bread? You can eat that. And Jesus says, ah, it's, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Hey, I'll take you up to the, uh, the uh, lookout up here, and everything that you lay your eyes on, I'll give it to you. And you can have it. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. And he's like, no, nope, i got to worship the Lord my God. That's it. Okay. How about I'm taking it up to the top of the temple. If you throw yourself down, angels will grab you before you even scratch the heel of your foot. W would you do that? And that's written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. No, no, no. The Bible says that God will give charge over the angels and won't let anything happen to you. You can do that, right? No, no, no. That would be tempting God. And when the devil tempted Jesus three times, Three times Jesus answered him with scripture, what happened? The devil left. But you see, when <laughs> the devil was tempted, or the devil tempted Eve in the garden, and Adam gave in to the temptation, where did the devil go? He stayed because he was actually cursed by God. God ended up pronouncing a curse upon Satan uh, during that time. So he didn't just do his work and leave. He knew that he had an open channel to be able to continue to cause temptation. And so he planted a seed in that garden of doubt upon the word of God, which turned into a seed of sin, and that seed of sin would now carry on to Adam's entire family tree and eventually pass upon you and I. And so please understand that the devil knows scripture, and sometimes he knows it better than most Christians do, and so we need to know the word of God so that we can stand against the devil. Again, when you take a look at the armor of God in Ephesians chapter 6, the only... Uh, uh, offensive weapon that we have at our disposal is the sword of the spirit which is the word of god you know i've got a lot of things that we can quench the fiery darts of the devil with things that we can protect our heart and our minds with but we only have one tool at our disposal to fight back against uh, the spiritual wickedness of this world and it is the word of god 
And so Luke chapter 4, verse number 12, when Jesus answering said unto him, it is said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So again, Jesus knows scripture as well. I came across this quote that I thought was helpful. When Jesus was tempted with the offer of all the kingdoms of the world, to accept would not displace Satan's lordship, but like Adam, he would fall bondage to it. Think about that for just a moment. If Jesus were to accept Satan's offer to bow down, and then Satan would give him everything that the world had to offer, that wouldn't put Jesus in charge and Satan no longer in charge. Had Satan bowed down to Satan, Satan would still be in charge. And so again, he gave the idea to Adam and Eve, hey, eat of this fruit if you want to. You're going to be like God and God won't get to be God anymore. And when he did that, Adam and Eve fell bondage to the trap of Satan and fell bondage to sin as a result. Had Jesus taken Satan up on his offer to either turn bread, uh, in, or rock into bread or to uh, bow down and worship or to throw himself off the roof of the temple, would not have put Satan out of a place of authority. He would have put Satan into a place of authority. And so we see Jesus Christ, by resisting Satan, continued to show that God is more powerful than Satan, showed the true power of Christ versus Satan. Uh, if people ever wondered how a fight between Jesus and the devil would go, we've already seen it, and it's not even a fair fight. And here's the worst part. He found Jesus at his weakest moment, and Jesus Christ was still more powerful. And so, still is, 100%. Next, Three final thoughts of how we apply this to our life. What does this mean to us? Again, it's not enough to just go out with knowledge and, and hey, now I'm super smart and you're not. How do we apply this? First of all, the shame of my sin was born on Calvary. I'm no longer naked and exposed in my sin, but I'm covered in the righteousness of Jesus. If you've been saved, if you've been born again, if there's been a time in your life where you've accepted Christ as Savior, you are no longer shamed by your sin you should no longer feel guilt for your shame because your shame has been taken to the cross of jesus christ and put to death once and for all one of the things that hurts my heart so badly is to see christians who are stuck in a guilt and shame cycle because of their sin i feel so embarrassed for what i've done i feel so unworthy that god would love me i just a terrible excuse for a human being i shouldn't even be a christian i'm probably not a christian uh, because of all these awful things that i've done i'm so ashamed and i'm so embarrassed when did these things happen they happened 30 years ago it's just like what like no 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 you were never meant to carry your own guilt and shame Amen. ever and so you don't have to be naked and exposed in your shame. You're not clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And let me say this too, just to help you out. When people share the past of their sin, we should never heap shame on that. We should heap grace on that. Oh man, you know, when I, I didn't know any better before I was saved. I, you know, I had an abortion when I was 17, but God showed me that was wrong now, and I'm, I repented of that, and God's forgiven me. Praise God, good for you. You're a picture of God's grace. Amen. God bless you for sharing that. Thanks for, thanks for being transparent like that. That's our response to that. It's not like, oh my goodness, can you believe that? That is so awful. That is, that's wicked. That's shameful. No, no, no. The shame was placed on Christ, and he's already paid that in full. We don't get the right to heap shame on that. We get to heap grace onto that. We get to heap God's glory onto that. And so that's important to note. And so when I see Christians that are stuck in the guilt and shame cycle, it hurts my heart because like that, that's been settled. That's over and all. <coughs> Next, application here. We have to protect and uphold the picture of marriage as it's more than just two people who want to do life together. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and his church. 
again, when before the Supreme Court made it possible for, for gay marriage in the United States, the state of Hawaii was uh, contemplating what they were going to do, and because it's a ridiculously liberal state, they were going to, you know, allow, open the floodgates for it. And so there were several churches that were trying to get pastors to rally their congregation to go up to the Capitol and make signs and, and chant and uh, show people that we're really against this and stuff like that. No lie. I said, we're just not going to participate in that. It's not. Is it because you don't believe in the sanctity of marriage? No, 100% do. But I don't believe that making signs and shouting at people is going to change anything. I want to sit down and have a conversation with a person one-on-one and say, hey, how did you wind up here? Uh, you know, hey, have you ever contemplated what the Bible has to say? Do you give any thought to what God's words? Do you even know what God's word says? I want to have conversations more like that than I want to make a bunch of signs and take my kids and put oversized T-shirts on them that say things on them, you know, and shout at people when they drive by. I don't, I don't feel like that's our place as the church. Our place as the church is to love people to truth, not to shout them to truth. And so we just didn't participate in that, not because we didn't think it was important, but because we thought that there was probably a better way to have that conversation. But also, uh, I'm a strong believer in the sanctity of marriage because it's a picture of how Jesus loves his church and how his church is committed to Jesus. I, I get emails. I used to get a lot. I don't get any more because I, I took my, my contact information off our church website. But uh, I used to get a lot of emails from people who are like, oh, we're going to be in, in Hawaii and we'd love to get married on the beach. Would you be willing to perform our marriage? The answer to that 100% of the time is no. You know why? I'm not a wedding officiant. That's not my jam. That's not my job. I'm a pastor. I help Christians who love each other and love Jesus to live together in a committed vow, covenant vow before God to, to serve Jesus with their life. That's what I do. I don't officiate weddings. That's not my thing. And so sometimes it'll be like, uh, you know, well, we both go to XYZ Church and our pastor, you know, can't make it out and he would want you to perform on our behalf. Would you call our pastor? I'm not. It's just, it's not my thing. It's not what I do. And so if you want a wedding officiant, you can find one on Craigslist. But like, that's just not my jam. My job is to help people live for Jesus with their lives. That's what I do. And marriage is a way that we do that. Uh, I used to have a really bad tracker, track record. I've got a better track record now. But no lie, like the first five people that I went through premarital counseling with, none of them got married because they got like two lessons in and go like, hey, I think this is more of a commitment than I thought it was. And so I was like, hey, good. You know, I don't want you to find that out like two years from now or five years from now. I want you to like not get married than to get married and be miserable, get married and get divorced. And so uh, I remember Brandon and I, see me, I was going through premarital counseling with them uh, before they get married. And I told them, I said, like, so far I've, I've uh, taken six people through this and none of them have gotten married. And they went home and were like panicked, like, Maybe he's not going to marry us. Do we have a plan B? And I'm like, should we find another church? Or we're not made for each other. Maybe, we should, maybe we're not going to be married. It's like, no, it's not you. It's the commitment that you're making. It's a big deal. And so marriage is such a beautiful picture. We have to hold that up. And that's why Christian marriages should be held up. You say, well, my marriage isn't really one that I want to hold up for people to see. Then you need to fix your marriage because your marriage should be held up for people to see the love of Jesus for his church. And so that's why for me, I'm, I'm big time on building men to love their wives, to love their children, to love Jesus and walk with Jesus because we are holding the banner high for what Christian marriages look like. Unfortunately, in America, Christian marriage fares no better than secular marriage and the fact that the divorce rate is almost identical. That's shameful for Christians. Shameful. So we want to hold the banner high because it's more than just like, hey, I love you, you love me, we should totally get married and see if it works. No, 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 no. This is so much bigger than that. And so 
I also, also want to be careful that, that if you're here tonight and you've either been divorced or remarried or you're currently divorced or you've, you've been married and it didn't work out or something like that, that you don't feel shame because, again, if you're listening and paying attention, there's no shame here at all. It's all about Jesus. And so, but I want to make sure that we understand that marriage isn't something to be taken lightly or taken flippantly because it's ordained by God and it's a picture of how much God loves us. Final thought, whenever we're tempted like Adam, we should look to the example of the last Adam, which is Jesus Christ. Hey, don't do what Adam did. Do what the last Adam did. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the last Adam. Don't do what Adam did. Don't give in to temptation. Don't have a dialogue conversation with the devil. Quote scripture and run. The Bible says if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. That's a promise. The problem is you and I many times will entertain the devil or entertain the devil's thoughts or will entertain doubt. Those things are ungodly and unhelpful. And so I need to do what Jesus did. I plant my feet firmly in the foundation of the word of God and I can't move. I'm sorry. And so we when when tempted and we will be some of us will be tempted before the night's over tonight. We need to to obey Jesus and follow his example as opposed to giving in like. Thanks for joining us for the Huikala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.